This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 136 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Broadcast recently had a session with Matt Hatch, who was talking about how to plant a church without killing yourself. And in this podcast, we're bringing you the recording of that session. You can find the full notes on everything that Matt said at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 136. So here is Matt Hatch. As Rada says, I lead Mosaic Church in Leeds. We planted this church about 15 or so years ago. Uh, I moved with my wife Philippa and two young kids um, that by the grace of God uh, we survived the first couple of years Uh, we didn't bring a team or anything so we had to go out finding some people that wanted to join our church and that grew and we really wanted to be a church planting church so we've uh, really tried to um, multiply leadership and invest in people And so we're now a multi-site church. So we meet in four different locations on a Sunday across the city. And we've sent out about five church planting teams uh, to Leeds and uh, to other nations. And we also just uh, seem to be continually sending out different people to be involved in church plants uh, around the world. And I guess in my uh, leading of Mosaic and discovering it firsthand and also in uh, training up lots of people and then coaching church planters, I feel like I meet a lot of uh, people that really find the church planting process a challenge, really. It's, I think it's one of the hardest things you can probably do. And over the years, I think I've picked up a few things which will hopefully be helpful to you um, that will mean that you can avoid some burnout, avoid damaging your marriage and without sort of killing your vision so that if your plant just um, uh, take root and grow that you want to perhaps do it again or you're up for sending other people out. And so I've got 10 things to give you. Uh, we'll see how we do with time, whether I get through them all. Uh, it's a combination of biblical examples and just wisdom I've picked up. So number one, um, I've called this phone a friend. And this is about outside coaching and accountability. Howard Hendricks is a professor at Dallas Seminary, estimates about 80 or 90 percent of your leadership development will happen on the job. And so preparation is obviously really essential before you go church planting. There's nothing like being in a situation where your knowledge is less than your experience. It means that As you go, you're learning, and it's really, really helpful to have someone to process this learning with. And so a good coach that you can speak to, I think, is absolutely essential. Uh, Ed Stetzer, who's written a lot about church planting, he interviewed 600 church planters, and he says planters who met weekly with a mentor led churches that were almost twice the size of those that didn't have a mentor so I guess we all need a Barnabas 
Um, Barnabas, as you know from the scriptures, he sponsored Paul, puts faith in him, Acts 9, he develops him in ministry, Acts 11, and then partners with him, Acts 13, on a church planting trip. And then Barnabas very humbly steps back and lets Paul take the lead. And that is the mark of a great coach. Um, However, he's secure enough to confront him and challenge Paul face to face, Acts 15. And so we we just need, we all need a Barnabas. We need someone that can help us. Um, So my encouragement to you is be the squeaky wheel that gets the oil. That means be the one that asks for help. Seek it out. Um, Personally, I I started with my sort of church planting heroes, those people that I knew that had done it and done it well. And I would call them regularly, speak to them, or you need to find people in your wider team um, that you think uh, are available in order to give you some help. So number one, phone a friend. Number two, um, I've entitled this, it's usually worse than you think. If you're a church planter, I think naturally you've got a slightly obsessive pioneering personality. You're proactive. You're probably a doer. You're full of faith, expectation. And therefore, I think church planters generally underestimate how they're really doing because you're so busy doing. So the planters I know that have burnt out totally underestimated how bad things actually were and and they connected with their tiredness and their fatigue far too late. So with hindsight, they, they would say, oh, yeah, just for a long time I was feeling this and I, was, uh, I didn't quite crash and burn, but I was just flying far too low to the ground. And, um, and, but by then it's too late. And so I think my advice to church planters would be if you're tired – If you're aware of your tiredness, you're probably actually bone weary. And if you're bone weary, if you're sort of aware that you're feeling like you've not got much left to give, then you're probably exhausted. And if you're aware that you're exhausted, then you probably need a break immediately. So uh, I'm sure as you have uh, read up about church planting and engaged with church planting, you've had and heard lots of advice about having good boundaries, having good work-life balance. But my guess is most of you ignore it, um, it because those things are just different for everyone. Um, most of you are probably very high capacity, so you push and push and push. And um, I just think a, a really helpful bit of advice is that it's probably worse than you're saying, um, because you're but just generally speaking, most church planters are just so focused on getting the job done and so want to see God's kingdom advance that you really do underestimate what's going on on the inside. So, you know, follow the advice that all the wise people before you have said, make sure you get a day off during the week, find some friends outside of the plants that you can just hang out with every now and then or phone or Skype, try and get into your diary something that's fun, something that is just life-giving, and be honest. Be honest with how you're doing and then take action. Uh, I heard someone say that managing your energy is just as important as managing your time. So um, 
there's a sense in which uh, I think the better you know yourself, the better able you are to work out the highs and lows of a day and the highs and lows of a week. And when you need to just be kind to yourself and sort of come off the accelerator a bit and those times where you can advance again. So uh, I know that doesn't sound like good news, but it's usually worse than you think. And it's just an appeal to self-awareness. Thirdly, uh, third thing that will stop you uh, from killing yourself doing a church plan is understanding that an unresolved past will damage your future. An unresolved past will damage your future. Most of us have issues from our past that work against us if they're left unresolved. And I just don't think we talk about this enough. Yes, I totally believe we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. But we're also work in progress. We're prone to bad habits. We've all got coping mechanisms. And what happens in church planting is the pressure squeezes you and drains you of your normal um, coping mechanisms. And so what's inside eventually comes to the surface. And if there are unresolved issues, then those things tend to emerge at some point during the church plant. And you've probably heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. And I've just, just seen that in church planting. Uh, I knew one church plant leader who... When he told his story, you could tell that there was a lot of rejection, rejection from people, um, rejection in his life that he would say that he'd sort of dealt with and forgiven people. But there was just this nagging feeling on uh, as I spoke to him that actually this is unresolved. There are still things that you need some help with. And for him, he um, because he never fully dealt with the rejection, he would end up Um, rejecting people as soon as they got close enough to him or in any shape or form rejected him, even if it was a small amount of rejection, he couldn't take it. And so I saw him go through a succession of different leaders or people joining the church and then quickly leaving as uh, the relationship perhaps got to a point where some things needed to be crunched or some honesty needed um, was needed in a conversation and this rejected person will continue to push away. And on the face of it, he seemed like a really together guy. But um, um, I know personally, I think probably about six years into the church plant, I felt that I got to a point where I just felt really stuck, spiritually speaking, and I didn't feel like I was growing. And I knew that it it wasn't just me not putting the work in, but it was connected to just my past and stuff that happened to me and some of my stuff, some of my junk. And so I sought out some counselling and um, it was incredibly helpful uh, to deal with some of the things that just I had no idea quite how, how much they were holding me back. And so I guess point three Um, an unresolved past will damage your future is an appeal for just some honesty, some self-awareness to ask the Holy Spirit to show you where um, perhaps there's some areas in your life that need some work and perhaps some trusted friends that you can say, you know, what, what do you think, what can you see in my life that you think could trip me up in the future? Okay. Number four, 
um, have entitled Workmanship Before Works. And so connected to this idea of being spiritually healthy, I think one of the most helpful things to focus on is your identity in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 10, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the order is important. We're God's sons and daughters before we lift a finger, before we do any works. Identity comes before impact. And um, being secure in Christ, being secure in your identity, well, it's just so essential in church planting. I, I know for me, I, I moved from Bedford, where I was leading a thriving, healthy church, to move to Leeds, which involved uh, getting a job, uh, spending, I spent about six months out of work, finally found a job. It was long hours, didn't pay very well. It was quite, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, I guess, a job with not much responsibility. And for those two years uh, from leaving church ministry into sort of a new city, very few friends, into uh, not a great job, um, I really felt God used that season to strip away a lot of the things that I'd sort of built up around myself as um, things to strengthen my identity, which weren't based in being a son of God, but were much more based in the things that I was doing. And, you know, I, I look back and think, wow, that was the grace of God at work in me. You see, when you get church planting in those early days, especially, um, really there's, there's nothing else to the church plant apart from you and perhaps your family. Um, and, and so for everyone that comes to your church plant, comes to your house, when, you, when you're inviting them to join your community, really you're inviting them to join you on this sort of mission to plant a church. And so when they say no to the church plant, it, it often is them saying no to you. Uh, I remember in our early days, we, we had five or six people and this absolutely outstanding leader um, came along to our group. She was someone that I had uh, heard a lot about, had a brilliant reputation, track record. And I just thought, wow, she would really tip the balance in the church plant. And so we had her over. She came to our little evening meeting a couple of times and then met with us and just sort of said, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't, don't want to join. And I don't think God's telling me I should join. And I can just remember just that feeling of she's rejecting us. Um, th this is less about God's told her. This is more about she, what she doesn't really like what she sees. And as a church party, you, you just have that a lot. And that sense of, um, personal rejection and if we're not secure in our identity in Christ then those things come as really heavy blows to us and um, you know a secure leader is an extremely attractive leader and people generally can spot when there is insecurity and when there's a lack of um, just maturity in this area and um uh, and so to survive church planting, um, I, I know it's very basic, but um, your identity in Christ needs, needs your attention, needs your work. Otherwise, you're going to struggle.
Number five, um, I've entitled Build a Home That Helps Build a Church. So this is really, really practical stuff. I'd encourage you to make it as easy as possible to host people in your home as it's the hub of the plant for quite some time. Even once you get going on a Sundays, my guess is you will have lots of people through your home, uh, leaders meetings, small groups, uh, just your house will probably be one of the centres of the social life of the church. And so I tell all our church planters to really think about the house that they're going to rent or buy in terms of a home that really works. So simple things like can people park easily on your street? Um, you, 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 you might have 20 people show up at your house all driving. Uh, is there anywhere to park? I'd encourage you, if you can afford it, to have wood flooring or some sort of laminate flooring instead of carpet all through the hallways and um so it's just really easy to clean um and you don't have to constantly be asking people to take their shoes off when they come in and you, you can if it's wet if it's dry you can just clean it really quickly and encourage you to buy a dishwasher if your kitchen isn't very big um Um, But if you've got a big kitchen, sometimes it's really great to have the team washing up and connecting over all of that. It just depends on uh, the size of your home. I encourage you to choose furniture that maximises seating. So don't go for aesthetics. Go for just like practical furniture. You can fit a lot of people in. Um, Learn five easy recipes that you can keep doing without much thought or time. Uh, For those of you that really aren't into cooking or haven't got time to do that, just some easy, simple recipes because you're constantly um, showing hospitality with people. I think we we probably could cook one thing really well. When we went church planting, we cooked lasagna and it just it it became a bit of a running joke that if people came to our house, that's what we did because we had small kids and it was just really, really easy to do. And I would encourage you to to ask for help from the people that are using your household. Um, In our early days, we had a lot of young people that didn't have family and they were totally naive and unaware of some of the challenges of them coming over in an evening while we were still putting kids to bed or kids were not settling uh, and the house was a mess and all that sort of thing. They would just come sort of plump themselves on the sofa. And um, it's, it's interesting many years later, as those guys have got married and maybe had kids, we've had many come and apologise to us and say, we're so sorry, we should have asked for more help. And we should have we should have asked them to do much more. I've got some friends that are church planting that have actually in their kitchen, they've set up like a bit of a, 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 a coffee machine and kettle and tea and coffee and all that sort of thing just um, just outside the kitchen um, and it, it looks a bit clunky but it just means that everyone that comes into their home can sort of just help themselves and they've asked people in their church plant to sort of take ownership of this little refreshment station or, or whatever it is and it's just like a really practical uh, thing that will help you and uh, not everyone can do this but if you can have a downstairs toilet uh, a downstairs loo means that everyone that comes into your home isn't traipsing upstairs. A, um, sometimes it's a bit worrying if you've got people in your home who you don't know who they are and, they, and you've got kids upstairs. 
um, and it just means you can it can be a bomb site up there, um, and no one will know um, if you have a downstairs loo. And I'd encourage you just to think about um, like how you use your home carefully. So in the early days, we um, just said to uh, anyone that joined the, the launch team, we will always cook extra at tea time. So between five and seven, we're going to be dealing with kids. Um, we're going to be eating. You're always welcome to come over. We will tell you if it, it's not appropriate. So we used to always cook extra and um, that worked really well for a season. Um, we um, were told to really be careful in year two and three of the church plants Um uh, especially just in terms of uh, our own energy levels and um, having people through the home constantly because you can, for a year or two, you can just keep going on adrenaline and you can just keep pushing through. But by year two, year three, you, you often feel like you're flagging and you can't bear the thought of having to hoover again because there's another meeting at your house. And um, I just would encourage you to watch out for that and ask for help and have boundaries where you need it. Um, We had a a very strange young man who um, was really not very nice and he joined our church plant in the early days and he would sometimes come over to our house and he would want to come in and and so I had to sort of establish some boundaries with him to say that, you know, he's not, I'm going to be coming in when my wife and kids were on their own. I said, you can come in when I'm here. And I can remember um, coming home and he was in the home and he'd sort of managed to get past my wife and into the home and uh, it felt very unsafe. And so I, you know, I physically manhandled him outside and kicked him out of the house uh, in love, in love, and um, had to be very straight with him and um because he just wasn't listening to me asking him nicely and and so that's an extreme case um but establishing boundaries of when people are allowed to come over is um i think really important um sixthly um Connection to Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Um, Planters need to fix their eyes on Jesus if they're to run for the long haul. And I know this is really obvious, but very few planters that I meet actually have a plan for how they're going to connect to God. How is that going to happen daily? How's it going to happen weekly? How's it going to happen termly? I would encourage all of you just to have a bit of a plan in your mind. Like, what does it look like for me to connect to Christ? Um, uh, I would really recommend having a rhythm so you have daily devotion and daily time to pray. But on a weekly level, um, you have time to linger longer and spend a bit more time in study or in prayer. And then I'd encourage you to think termly, like getting away or going for a day out. Um, I personally, we had a really great retreat center that was only uh, about half an hour's drive away from Leeds. And my wife would do 24 hours, then I would do 24 hours there. And it was just, it was just a lifesaver. 
to get time away to reflect and sleep and rest and pray. And so I'd encourage you to have a plan. And it's important just because, you know, this is this is the life, isn't it, of, of a Christian is to be in relationship with Jesus, of growing in our love for him and 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 the things that he's passionate about. But it's also important as your church plant grows that your spiritual and uh, spiritual authority and leadership, uh, spiritual leadership are, are growing as the church plant grows. The, the church plant will need you to be maturing in your relationship with Christ. And my experience is, is that church plants tend to reflect your strengths and weaknesses, spiritually speaking. So um, I know chatting to one church plant leader who just had a regular discipline of prayer and fasting and each week he would have a day that he fasted and dedicated extra time to pray and it was fascinating meeting his church because many of them also just had this daily uh, weekly rhythm of prayer and fasting and so often your devotional life to some extent gets replicated in the people you're discipling and your church and whatever your strengths and weaknesses are in that area often that gets replicated in in what you're building seventhly watch for warning lights on the dashboard watch for warning lights on the dashboard just as you take your car in for a service when you've got some sort of flashing lights on the dashboard warning you that something's wrong Uh, There are warning lights in our lives that indicate when we need help. And so here's some warning lights that I've spotted from time to time with various church planters that tell you um, you're not doing that well or you need some help or you need to take some time. One is emotional imbalance. So you perhaps have a lack of patience for mundane things or you've got a discipline a disproportionate emotional reaction to a certain thing that happens. So I was speaking to a church planter recently who would find himself getting really, really angry in the car and, you know, like really angry if someone just cut him up or did a little thing. And he, he was never usually like that. And it was an indication that something wasn't quite right. Um, another warning light is when you find yourself moving from leading to maintaining. So the idea here is that you sort of stop pioneering, you stop taking risks and you just let things tick over. And sometimes a leader can find themselves just over time moving from that sort of radical risk-taking to just things maintaining. And it's a sign that there's probably sort of a bit of tiredness building up and um, you may need to sort of work out how you can recharge your batteries A lot of church planters self-medicate. And what I mean by self-medicate and why it's a warning line is that um, uh, they've developed some sort of coping mechanisms to help deal with some of the struggles that they've got. Um, Some overeat, some undereat. I think the most common one that I've come across is escaping. Is that, that they... Uh, the pressure of the church plant means that they're looking for ways to escape and to sort of go into, you know, a bit of a, a, a world where they don't have any responsibilities um, or they are 
uh, are trying to find ways to make themselves feel better. I know I was speaking to someone recently who, um, when they were church planting, they used to buy a lottery ticket and it didn't happen very often, but they, at the beginning of the week, they would buy a lottery ticket and uh, they would have this dream of winning and spending the lottery winnings on um, on just really fun stuff and sort of leaving the city they were planting in and moving to Australia or something like that. And they would just really enjoy the dream. And sometimes they wouldn't even check the numbers on a Friday night because they had hope in their pocket, had hope of a, a, a different future. And that's a big warning light on the dashboard that something's not right. Uh, for some, it's hopelessness and cynicism. So you just find you've tried lots of things. Perhaps it doesn't feel like anything is working. Nothing's changing. And so you just give in to that thought. And so it's really hard to speak to you about new endeavours or having pioneering faith because you, you just feel like it's, it's not going to work anyway. Um, Isolation is a warning light. Um, avoiding new challenges or problem solving, so you just bury your head in the sand. Um, for some, it's, it's just lower productivity and high procrastination. Speaking to one planter who managed to waste hours and hours on the BBC website, you know, they would just click every link, every story, and while they should have been preparing for a preach or they should have been phoning someone, or they should have been doing some outreach, and they just, it was just revealing, you know, a tiredness in them. Perhaps you're emotionally numb or you lack compassion. Um, or uh, for a lot of people in church planting, um, a, a, an emotional numbness and lack of compassion comes from not grieving well. You know, there's an incredible amount of loss in church plantings, a lot of disappointment, a lot of goodbyes, a lot of failed events. I remember one of the first events I ever tried to lead, uh, did a week of outreach at university, had a huge uh, gig planned at the end of the week, brought in, paid for us, uh, this band to come in, um, it's hundreds and hundreds of invites, and we didn't get a single guest. And, you know, that that was the first thing I ever tried to do. Um, and uh, so it wasn't a great start. And the reality is in church planting, there'll be, there'll be loads of times where, know stuff happens that actually really hurts and it's important we go to god with our grief psalm 6 the psalmist says be merciful to me lord for i am faint O lord heal me for my bones are in agony my soul is in anguish how long O lord how long turn O lord and deliver me save me because of your unfailing love and it's just important that we grieve well and we use the psalms especially to help us express our disappointment if we don't we find a hardness of heart kicks in. We start to emotionally get numb. And so we've got to start talking about these things. Don't be too proud. One study among missionaries found that 75% didn't want to admit their warning lights for fear of being sent home. And so don't be that person who keeps it all bottled in. Number eight, and uh, I'll try and speed up a little bit so we've got some time for questions. Um, number eight is don't, don't under-spiritualize spiritual warfare. We're told, um, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. 
to the one we are an aroma that brings death and to the, uh, to the other an aroma that brings life and who is equal to such a task, 2 Corinthians 2.15. The reality is we are in a battle and it is life and death. The gospel we preach is powerful. And so we must not under-spiritualise spiritual warfare. I've just returned from meeting with a few church planters in New Zealand and um, it's been incredible hearing their story over the last eight years and two massive earthquakes hit Christchurch. Um, there's been issues with physical health, um, grief, isolation, um, being let down, and now... Uh, in the news, um, huge massacre in, in two local mosques that have massively impacted the city. And, you know, you speak to the church planters in New Zealand and you're just aware of the, the for them, the reality of spiritual warfare and the need for prayer, the need for them to reach out for prayer support. And so I just massively encourage you to, find people that will support you prayerfully and sometimes we send out our letters don't we asking for prayer and money and what we really want is the money but um we really need to find people that will stand with us in prayer uh ninthly different roles at different sizes so i think a church planter has got to be incredibly flexible uh, adjusting their the role they play, their leadership role, according to the size of the plant. So for me, between 0 and 10 people, I needed to be a real all-rounder. Um, people were generally building to me and my family. We were the community. And so I felt I was really at the, sort of the centre of things. And so I spent a lot of my time with those people. But when we grew beyond 10 and we sort of were between 10 and 30 people, I still needed to be a bit of an all-rounder, jack-of-all-trades, doing lots of different things in the plant. But my role needed to change that I wasn't just building to me, but I was building people to one another because I needed to give my time to find the next 20 people. And so I wanted to create community without me at the centre. And then between 30 and 50 people, it was much more about me delegating and raising up leaders, giving people opportunities to use their gifts. I was still doing the majority of it, but I was spending a lot of time investing in others and giving them opportunity uh, to grow. And then between 50 and 75 people, it was about me releasing leaders. I, I was trying to find some specialists. So I was just doing the things that I was particularly good at. And we had other people doing the things that they were much better at me at. And I was removed a lot from the detail. And just those changes there from naught through to 75, a church planting leader needs to be very adept at knowing the sort of leadership that's needed at each stage. And I'm sure it's different for every church plant. And just be very wise about those changes, because if you lead in the same way with 10 people as you do with 60 people, it really could kill you. It, it just the, the level of pressure on you personally. So beware of that. And number 10, um, don't gain a church and lose a marriage. 
don't gain a church and lose a marriage. There are huge pressures on your family relationships when you plant and the people you love the most often get the dregs of what you've got left. Um, obviously, if the spouse of the church planter has not bought into church plant, then the project should end immediately if if your husband and wife aren't up for it then you shouldn't be going but I can say some more about this in the Q&A but just to briefly say I think what you must do as if you're if you're a church planting couple is talk about your expectations of how involved each person's going to be all the stats say that Um, the success of a church plant does not depend on whether the spouse is an active co-pastor or a behind-the-scenes kind of person. Um, Both of those models work. But the question is, how will you work? How will you plant together? How will you operate in each other's strengths? And then how will you let the church plant know that that's how you work? And I would just encourage you not to assume anything, talk it all through, sort out like practically how you're going to make your church plant work together. So, for example, who's going to do the tidying up before a church meeting? Who puts the kids to bed? Who casts the vision? Who does the teaching? Who does the disciple making? Um, I was speaking to a couple just recently and the uh, wife was much stronger at casting vision than the husband and but the husband would probably tend to just assume that he should be the one casting vision for the church plant obviously they both need to actually the wife was just brilliant at it and so she needed to be released to do it more so make sure um you spent some time talking about what it looks like um, to lead together or to have different roles um as the church plant and grows how do you work out between between two of you actually as as loads of us would have just two starting or, or you would be the main kind of leaders um if you like um when, when do you start the conversation who does what well um what it really helps if you've got some experience leading together and before you go church planting. And so it's a much less pressurized environment if you can do it in a local church before you actually are on your own and you've got some uh, people that are able to work with you that know you well. And I think I would encourage the church planting couple to ask their the people that are investing in them some really honest questions. Like when, when we talk about this stuff, like who's really good and... Um, what, what do you think I should be spending my time doing? And I think it, we've just got to be careful. We don't just assume that the husband does some things and the wife does other things, actually. Um, and, you know, that works in all sorts of ways. So there can be unfair assumptions for the wife that she's going to be super involved when I've seen some brilliant church plants where the wife actually isn't that involved. She's got a career of her own or she feels really called to homemaking. And, uh, and actually that, that whatever the spouse does, it, it, the both ways can work. 
And I've seen it the other way where the husband just assumes that he's going to do everything and uh, he wants his wife involved, but the wife, uh, sorry, the husband just assumes that he's better and perhaps he's worked for the church and all that sort of thing. And, and I think um, try and do some of that hard work before you go because it's just you'll probably in a much safer environment. But if you haven't and you're just on your own, um, then your coach or someone that is speaking into the relationship needs to help. Mm. And I just think it takes real humility to have that conversation because it's touching on some really personal issues. And I hope that there's a safe enough place to have that, that sort of honest conversation. Yeah. And what 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 would be some of the tips um, in in the marriage? Because as you said throughout... It is quite stressful to do the church plant. It's 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 difficult. It's you know involves loads of work. Um, how do you find time? So so if you if you go back in your memory <laughs> to when you started out, how did you and Philip find time to to go out to leave kids with somebody to actually reconnect with each other? To and then that on one side and on the other side is. When do you find time to talk about vision, to encourage each other, to kind of spur each other on, um, to pray together? How did it work for you? Yeah. Um, I I think we would, yeah, work hard probably to, uh, when the kids were small, we could get a takeaway in, we, we, didn't really have much money to go out for meals and things like that, but we would try and make sure we made a special effort one evening a week. Um, and I guess a good question to ask yourself is what, what are the common themes in our conflict? And so what are the things that just keep coming around? Because that will give you an idea of sort of where your Achilles heel, where your, where your pressure points were. And in those early days, um, I think, uh, so, so we did. We took two years to gather a team of about twenty-five, and then we launched on a Sunday. And when we launched on a Sunday, things really ramped up quickly. And so, in years between years two and four, there was a lot of pressure on my time. And the thing that kept on coming up in our conflict was, to my shame, um, that Philippa, my wife, just felt that ministry was more important than her. And she just felt that she, that like when, when it came to the crunch, there were just moments where I chose really badly and, and didn't pursue her, and di- and, but pursued ministry. And we just noticed, I guess, um, yeah, especially in those early years, that that was a reoccurring theme. And it got more and more painful every time we talked about it um, because it felt like we'd been here before and you said that you were going to do this and, and, um, and so I would really, really just try and, 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 and find those, those themes in your conflict and in the pressure and recognise that, it, it, that Achilles heel will be something the devil will want to exploit as well. So it's not just your personal responsibility to, to deal with it, but it, there's also this, you suddenly, you know, you're at war and there is a chink in your armour. And almost you need to put extra energy into that area to protect it and safeguard it. Um, Otherwise, 
things will unravel quite quickly. And me, my pers- my personality type is when um, I'm in conflict or when there's something wrong, I find it just affects everything else. I, I find it really hard to sort of just crack on when I know something's wrong. And um, so that really needed addressing. Yeah. Uh, be- before I um, ask you something else, I just want to um, remind people that they can still actually post um, some questions. Uh, I have loads to ask you, so don't worry. But um, I know that some people um, joined a bit later, so if if they want, there is still time to to um, ask some questions. Um, and um, the next thing I want to ask you is a little bit, um, how did you manage to protect that time for the family as a whole? Uh, because as you said, first few years, there is loads of coming in and out, loads of people coming, you have to open your home. How do you protect that time when you're together as a family, when kids want to do something? What happens when kids say, I really don't want to have anybody in tonight? You know, what, how did you manage that? Yeah, um, with difficulty. Like every, you know, everyone um, struggles with that. I, I guess a few things for us. Um, when the kids were small, five till seven, we called it the death zone because, you know, we were, you know, you're just desperate to, you know, for the day to finish with the kids going to bed. Uh, our kids went to bed at seven and then you sort of felt like you just got a moment to either have to engage with the church in a meeting or some time to just to, you know, to relax. And when the kids were small, we actually really encouraged a lot of people to come over during that time because we actually did well having other people to help us and to just be adult company during that time. And then the kids got to a point where it was unhelpful for people to be over. And I really, really worked hard to make sure I came home at five mm. um, where possible. Sometimes uh, I used to work seven till seven, so it, it was a little bit difficult in the early days. But when I started working part-time for the church on those days, I reserved that time uh, to really uh, – I mean, I, I used to read to our children, so we used to spend a long, long time just really devoted to the kids Um and we used to go up, take them early to bed, and I used to spend ages just reading to them. Mm. And so I think that really helped for when we did have a meeting, maybe at 7.30 or something like that, they'd felt that they'd really connected with me. Mm-hmm. And then, and and so, you, you know, as your kids go through different ages and stages, they will require those different times with you. Mm. And um, I think it's just being aware of what's needed and trying to give it to them. Now, um, I think coupled with that, really understanding your kids well and working with their their strengths and weaknesses and personality temperament. So we, we've got three children, two are extroverts, one's a super introvert. And so it was really important for, for, for our middle child to know that that we treated him a bit differently because of his introversion. And so when people came over to our house, we were very quick to give him permission to not have to stick around, to not have to sit at the table for hours. To um, We gave him the biggest room in the house for a bedroom um, cause just to give him lots of room to be by himself and to play. And, and I think knowing your kids well and knowing what they need and trying to adjust where possible 
is you know there's lots more I could say about that, but um, I think that's something we've worked hard at. Uh, and you know, my kids are now teenagers. So I've got three teenagers. They love the church. They love being part of that family. As they got older, so so when they got to about ten, we really started to buddy them up with people in the church plant. So we found some uh, some young people in their early twenties that were sort of. Uh, loving Jesus, radical, and all that sort of thing. We used to get them either living with us or we would invite them lots to, to hang out with our kids. And uh, and that uh, was really successful in giving them sort of relationships in the church that weren't just based on us, but with people that were an inspiration to them and they looked up to. And we found they would sometimes talk to them before they talked to us. And that that was a good dynamic, you know, because sometimes kids need that. Yeah, Yeah, loads I could say, but that's what comes to mind first. Yeah, brilliant. No, that's really good. Uh, Just just very quickly, um, I guess when when you have children, when you start church planting, um, then it's in a way important to involve them in the whole process, isn't it? Especially if you're moving if you're moving in schools, uh, it, did you supposedly had to do that? You, you obviously moved from Bedford to Leeds. Um, how did you how did you negotiate that? Um, yeah, well, they were very young. So, okay. uh, so my daughter was two. My son was born a month into getting there. But interesting. So, when my daughter, when we moved, we had a big a photo collage of all her friends, and she was only two and couldn't say much, um, and. Uh, when we put her to bed, she would point to the pictures of her friends and start crying. And so she couldn't verbalise loads, but we, we had to take the pictures down. It was it was breaking our hearts, you know, just because you know, she was feeling what we were feeling. And um, um, But really they were sort of too young to I- explain it to them. Mm-hmm. But you're dead right, just in, in terms of as they got older, we've... Um, so one little thing we did when our kids were five, three, and one, we spoke to the five and three-year-old and said, look, if any other children come, you know, you're our welcome team. You're, you know, one of your roles here is to help other kids, like, be part of the family that we're building. And the kids just loved that. And they were so good when other kids used to visit that they would sort of grab their hands and, <laughs> you know, go off and show them where all the toys are and that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. and so I think from an early age, we sort of tried to creatively think about what's a meaningful thing that they can do to get involved with. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, as we started from 10 moving backwards, uh, I would like to ask you about uh, about different roles for different sizes uh, of the church. And um, if you're if you're kind of the, the main lead um, lead couple, a strong pastorally um, and and setting the culture, but there aren't many evangelists in in, in a chair in a team as it is. Um, how how do you help a church connect with the town? Because obviously it's a new place for everybody. If you're pastoral but not quite evangelistic, how would you how would you do that? Yes, um, again, I mean that's hugely challenging. That is the reality for a lot of church planters. Is they they, they wouldn't say they're super gifted evangelistically. I think I would um, the vineyard when 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 they train their church planters, um, they are they would highly recommend that 50% of your time as a church plant leader should be spent on finding the next 
10 people to join your church. And so they're very big on the sort of the first five years or so of the church's existence, you guarding 50% of your time on the growth of the church, on reaching out. And if you're not, if you're more gifted pastorally, you've got to figure out a way to just do it yourself, even though you might not feel very good at it, but to bring people with you. And and so you're finding other people that probably aren't very good at it as well and finding creative ways to connect with people. So for us, it, that meant street outreach. I, I sort of vowed that I would never do that. And then I got to a city and thought, I just don't know anyone. How am, how am I going to meet anyone? I've got to get on the streets and do questionnaires and pray for people and do treasure hunting and all that sort of thing. And, um, and, uh, and I think the danger in, if you're a pastoral person uh, or a teaching type person going church planting is to sort of use that as a bit of an excuse not to do it. And, um, and the fact that you're doing it, however fruitful it is, will set the tone for the church plant and help establish a missional foundation. So the fact that we, went monthly and everyone knew that I wasn't very good at it, but I just like, this is too important, you know, for us to stay holed up in a room when we've got thousands of people on the street. I think that, that, that was really important. And, and, and I said, I talk about that 50%, 50% in the church, 50% out of the church. I, mm-hmm. I talk about that all the time with church planters because mm-hmm. it's so radical. Yeah. I, I just don't know many church planters that come close to that. Most church sponsors, when you've got 30 people, will spend 90% in and 10% out. And yeah. uh, the question is, well, who's going to get that next 10 people? You know, if you're not prepared to give it the time and lead other people in mission. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so I just wanted to ask a little bit about, uh, you were saying about watching the warning signs. Could you just give us a little bit more how... So, so if you see warning signs for the people in your team, what is the best way to approach that? Because you want to set uh, you want to set a culture of being transparent, of being like to having integrity, to actually being vulnerable. And I guess if you set that culture, then people who are joining would join something that they think is real and and actually quite authentic. And so, are you asking how do you do it when you see those warning lights in your team? Yeah. Well, I mean, firstly, you've got to be able to see them in yourself and 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 find appropriate ways to share that perhaps with your team as well. And I think that really helps it. You know, if you want a, a, a culture of vulnerability for you to appropriately be able to say, guys, this is what's going on in my life right now. I've only just seen it and this is what I'm doing to fix it. And that's really important. But if you see it in your team, um, um. I mean, my style would be very much um, to be making sure that the key people in my team I'm getting some time with in a, you know, maybe it's just an an hour every couple of weeks, but just a connection point where you get to go beneath the surface. And I think it's much more powerful for people to see it themselves for you than you to tell them, this is what I see, but rather to help them discover it and so by asking hopefully the right questions and being prepared to sort of dig a bit deeper Mm -hmm. um so the cynicism one i think is is quite common 
and just helping people with that um, because people are quite scared to admit that if you're trying to be a a, a church that's full of faith if you're if you're feeling cynical about praying for healing or salvations it's very difficult to put your hand up and say i'm not sure about this and so you do need some contexts that are safe for you to be able to perhaps ask a few more questions and say how do you feel about this you know it's okay if you're not you know totally on board um and then there's other times where perhaps you do need to sort of say look would you you mind me saying what i see when when, when we've when we've gone for this for me i just feel like you you know you don't seem to have lots of energy for this new thing. You know what's mm-hmm. going on, and and the grief thing, uh, which I mentioned just briefly. I just think yes. that is huge because we suffer so much loss in the church. Whether it's people you thought were going to join end up leaving, praying for ten people on Alpha and you get none, or three salvations and you get none. You know, there's just multiple moments in in church planting where your hope is here, your faith is here, and the reality is here, and that gap creates grief. And yeah. you, you've, you've got to find ways to talk about that. And yeah. um, and I think that's a powerful thing to do as a team, actually, is mm-hmm. to, you know, when Alpha finishes and only one became a Christian, for you to have a debrief meeting and say, guys, can we just talk about our disappointment together? You know, yeah. it's okay to feel really gutted at this point. And, and I personally, you know, I just really thought God was going to come through on this. And, and from what we can see, there's not the fruit we expected. You know, it's okay for us to say to God, God, you know, we feel really gutted about this. Um, but we, we, we're hoping for more, you know, and we often don't do that. We, we sort of quickly jump to, you know, we, t- we tend not to want to talk about something that didn't work very well and quickly jump to the next hill we're going to take. We forget to just help people through the the grief. Yeah. And I guess that is very important for, for, for our own mental health, isn't it? And, and um, could you just tell us some of the ways that, that even now, okay, your church is, you're multi-site and it's, it's, it's going great, but what are some of the ways that you actually, you're very kind of purposeful of taking care of yourself and actually looking after your mental health. It's, it's a huge thing in, in today's society. And as Christians, we are not any less vulnerable to it than, you know, than anybody else. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, well, I, I personally, I've got um, a couple of places where I do sort of accountability and have sort of robust people in my life that ask me those sort of tough questions and they know some of my weaknesses and some of the things that I'd prefer not to talk about and they're, they're good at pressing me. Um, I think one thing we've done well corporately is when we've sent people out or if we've sent church plants out, I think we were warned in the early stages that uh, often churches do end up, that plant other churches, if you don't grieve properly, the church doesn't want to send anyone else out. And so I think we've done a good job in 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 having goodbye moments where we express how we feel. And, um, and so often at church on a Sunday, um, someone is moving for a job or someone is joining a different church or whatever it is. And I think we try and be honest in those moments and not just present it like super positively. We, we try and sort of say, this is really painful when we say goodbye. And I personally 
you know, I loved this person and loved our friendship and and I feel the sense of loss as we send them, as well as we feel the privilege of being able to sort of see them move on. Yeah. Um, so personal accountability is helpful and then public moments where you get to do this stuff is really important because you're modelling something. Yeah, brilliant. Can you tell us about uh, on, on personal accountability and you were talking about uh, phone a friend and how, the, how important it is to have people to actually to, to, to cheer you on and to challenge you and whatever. Um, and, you know, if, if people move to another city, um, what is the, how, how important it is to, to find some like people of peace, some friends in each city that you're moving in? Okay, it's, we, we know it's very important to having someone from where you came from because they know you, but how important it is, is to have somebody where you are? Um, I think it's a, a bonus, but I think it's it often takes a while to find that person. Um, it might be a church leader that you connect with um, that just has a, a lot of grace for you and is like really willing to come alongside and sort of be that coach. Perhaps mm-hmm. they've planted themselves and so they totally understand. I know that's our posture in Leeds is if a church planter comes to the city, I personally meet with them and just sort of say, we're with you. You know, we know this is going to be hard. How can we bless you? And um, But I think it's actually quite rare and perhaps a bit less important because of technology and the ease with which it is to connect with people. Um, that it, it, You know, video calling is much more than a telephone call now. And, yeah. and so... I think I, I would say it's, it's a bonus. The important thing is having someone, even if they're out of your context. It's yeah. probably important for them to visit at some point so they can actually see what, what it is on the ground. And I know for me as a coach and someone who supports other church planters, everything changes when you do a visit. When you've, when you've done a few, like from a distance, but when you actually get there and feel the place and touch the culture and see where they're living and who they're trying to reach it just it, it massively helps the empathy and sort of the connection with them and the place but mm. but it's not essential to necessarily have someone on the ground there mm. initially yeah I, I i heard some church leaders uh, say things like oh you can't really have many very very good friends in your own church how did you find that balance can you actually have very very close friends um out of people that, that you're leading yeah how does how does the leadership impact the, the nature of the friendships yeah this is very complex this subject and i think the way we would want to build our churches is that you do have friends in the church you do have people that are your best friends in the church so we want to be relational we want people in our lives the risk is a lot of pain uh, because those people may hurt you those people may leave those people you know may not always agree or with your leadership decisions and so there's risk involved and it is simpler to just avoid that risk but I think that the loss is is that sort of sense of intimacy and feeling known and having history um I would say it's really important to have a friend outside as well and friends outside of the context. It, it, it is so complicated wearing your leadership hat. It's complicated enough in marriage 
um, you know, sometimes my wife will say to me, just stop being my pastor. Stop. You're not, you're my husband. You're not my church leader. And because, and I'm like, I didn't even mean to do that. Um, and, um, and so in friendship is, it is complicated. Am I their pastor? Am I their leader? And the reality is there is always going to be that, you know, we embody that leadership role. And so it will always have an impact on friendships within the church, but it shouldn't stop you from having friendships in the church. Mm. In my personal experiences, yes, we've got close friends in the church, but we've also made sure we've had some close friends outside of the church. There's just less complexity there. Um, and we've been very fortunate that we've been able to have a, a little bit of both. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And just a reminder, you can find the full notes on everything that Matt said at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 136. See you next time.